Welcome to your Active Stack Brief podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the computing power behind artificial intelligence. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active Stack Brief podcast. Today I'm joined by Vili Lidonvirta, professor at the Oxford Internet Institute. Hello, Vili. Hello, Luca. You have uh, recently raised the issue in your research about the huge computing power required to run large language models like ChatGPT. Can you frame the issue for our listener? Sure. So when we think about AI, often we just think about the applications, the how it looks to us. Um, in our web browser when we're using it. But what we're not thinking about so much is the massive infrastructure behind the screen that's needed, first of all, to train these AI models um, and then also to run them. Let's say GPT-3, as a large language model, has 175 billion parameters. um, And it took something like 300,000 exaflops of computing power to train. Um, And to put that in context, if you tried to train that model with um, an ordinary high-end PC, a a gaming computer that you might might find at home, it could take something like two to 300 years to actually finish training that model. And uh, when AI developers are developing these models, they need to you know, train them many times over, train it, test it, um, see how it performs, tweak it a little bit, train it again. And if every time you want to train it again, you have to wait two or 300 years, then obviously AI research is going to be very slow. So instead, what AI researchers do is they use many GPUs, many, many computer chips in parallel to train these models. And OpenAI uh, is said to have used uh, 10,000 GPUs to train ChatGPT. And even with those 10,000 GPUs, it still took days or weeks uh, each each time they wanted to train the model. And now I actually heard, I just spoke with with the developer, one of the the big uh, tech companies, um, and he claimed that uh, uh, GPT-4, um, if I remember correctly, it, they, they used uh, 25,000 GPUs to train it, and it still took uh, uh, several weeks. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, basically, that's basically the issue. So the huge computing power needed to train these models. And that sort of computing power is not available almost anywhere. It's actually very difficult to access. Thanks, Billy. There are actually a few elements to to unpack there. But if I understand correctly what you're saying, uh, the AI race, as some call it, is first and foremost a computing power race. So you mentioned that uh, this uh, computing power is not readily available who are the main actors um, active in this race? 
Yeah. Well, just let me just comment on the the AI race. What is it the race about? Well, AI stands on three legs. One is data. Uh, the other is algorithms that uh, developers create. And the third one is compute. And the public debate is dominated very much by data. Um, and, you know, I also was very much focused on the, the issues related to data and data governance and data access and data protection until I started talking to actual AI developers. And I, uh, I remember distinctly this, this time when one of them uh, explained to me that, well, no, data is not really the bottleneck. You know, there's lots of data. There's open data sets. Uh, scraping the entire internet is actually not that expensive. The real bottleneck is compute. It's the computing power required to actually train the, train the models or the algorithms using that data. And so as to the question of, well, who are the main players? Who has that compute? Um, actually, only three companies um, have uh, a most most compute in the world. One is Amazon with with its AWS cloud computing platform. The other is Microsoft with its uh, Azure cloud computing platform. And the third one is Google with, with its Google cloud computing platform. And um, these companies have massive data centers with tens or hundreds of, oh, up to 100,000 servers in one data center. Um, and they have these massive infrastructures because obviously they, they have large demand for computing uh, thanks to their own operations. They are all big internet companies, but also because they are in the public cloud business, which means that they are selling compute, computing power and data storage um, to lots of other companies. So most of the popular websites that you will visit uh, and most of the popular apps and digital services that they that you use, they actually run on AWS or a similar cloud computing platform. And thanks to that, these companies have this massive um, uh, sort of uh, capacity, massive reservoir of compute, which can then be used also to train AI models. Um, no ordinary startup or or even mid-sized company has anything like this number of uh, of gpus at its disposal that's very interesting really um so you mentioned uh, three big tech companies american companies that are of course the leading players in the cloud market um in europe uh, there have been a lot of discussions about digital sovereignty so how can eu companies or the eu at large uh, compete in this context, and, and what about you know um, economic powerhouses like the United States and China? What what role do they play into this? So indeed, these the le big three leading cloud computing powerhouses they are they are all American. Then there are some uh, a large uh, Chinese players as well, Alibaba Cloud. Is a is a big cloud computing platform, um, which which can also be used to train AI. 
And uh, interestingly, the U.S., as you know, is trying to limit China's access to the kind of um, high-end computer chips which are used to construct these data centers, which are used to train AI. So there's a whole sort of supply chain of, of, of very uh, physical um, uh, goods that is, is powering AI development. And um, the European countries, as you, as you say, they sort of um, you know, find themselves sitting between these two digital superpowers and wondering about their own digital sovereignty. You know, if we're dependent on three um, foreign companies for all of our compute, then how, you know, how autonomous or, or sovereign, if you will, uh, are we actually? Um, and one of the ways in which European countries are trying to address this now is by building um, actually public, publicly supported or publicly funded uh, compute capacity. For instance, here in the UK, just very recently, the government announced a 900 million pounds investment into building a national AI compute uh, capacity. So they want to invest um, 900 million pounds into building um, a public computing capacity that AI researchers could use and they wouldn't have to resort to uh, partnering with either Amazon, Microsoft, uh, or uh, Google. But the problem is this 900 million pounds really doesn't go very far. Um, it's, it's a tiny fraction of what these big uh, American tech companies are investing into cloud computing all the time. Google alone invests uh, about twice as much into R&D as the entire um, UK government. So um, it, it just doesn't buy the necessary amount of uh, compute uh, to compete. A recent uh, a report, UK government-sponsored uh, report suggested that um, the UK should buy um, um, or, or create a national public uh, com AI compute capacity consisting of 3,000 GPUs. But as I mentioned, ChatGPT was trained using 10,000 GPUs, and even that is now uh, old news in the rapidly developing world of, of uh, large language models. Now you need something like 20, 25,000 GPUs to train the cutting edge models. So the UK government's 3,000 GPUs is just not um, big enough. And the same problem faces France and Germany. In, in both France and Germany, there are efforts to build national or trusted or sovereign cloud computing platforms, not just for AI compute, uh, but also for things like government uh, data storage and uh, uh, hosting hosting uh, public sector services. Um, but they tend to lack the scale necessary to um, to uh, to actually achieve uh, achieve those efficiencies, those efficiencies of scale and that scale of investment that um, the American platforms have, and therefore they fall short of the American platforms in 
in, in features and in, in capacity. And therefore, uh, people end up in companies and researchers end up using the American platforms anyway. So, you know, then if you ask, well, what can be done about this? I think that uh, one uh, direction that European governments increasingly are looking into is, well, we need to have some kind of uh, collaboration between countries. Now, obviously, it doesn't make it any easier that um, the UK is no longer in the EU. Um, but certainly, countries that care about uh, a digital sovereignty and um, and having some kind of a national capacity to develop their own AI models and not have to rely on foreign companies for that. Uh, certainly, they are increasingly interested in the possibility of, well, can we can we cooperate over this? Can we pool our investments and that way reach the necessary scale? It's quite telling also that we are talking about um, collaboration in order to reach digital sovereignty. Um, yes. which, uh, oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's almost like an oxymoron, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to <laughs> yeah, pool exactly. some of your sovereignty. You have to pool some of your sovereignty. You have to give away some of your sovereignty in order to actually reach sovereignty, yeah. It's, there's a little bit of a tension or contradiction. But you see, it, it makes perfect sense because um, according to one theory, the purpose of government, the purpose of state is to provide public goods for citizens and businesses. And, and that implies that the minimum viable size of a sovereign state is such that it can it is sufficiently large to efficiently provide public goods to its citizens and businesses. And uh, what is that minimum efficient scale? It varies through history. It depends on technology. So if we have now entered an era in which the minimum efficient scale to um, provide digital public goods that society depends on is larger than the boundaries of industrial era countries, then that quite naturally leads into this pressure towards political um, uh, integration and, and unification. Or if, 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 according to this theory, basically, if you resist that trend, then um, you lose out in the race. And that way, the, the sort of efficiently sized political units triumph over the um, insufficiently large ones. Indeed. But uh, going a step back, is it even possible? I know we are, we are just getting started on this, but is it even possible to catch up? Um, so, for example, if you take uh, very successful AI models like ChatGPT, um, they are being used to train even more powerful algorithms. Uh, they are collecting... Uh, millions of data points that then feed into future algorithms. At the same time, computing power takes a lot, a uh, long time to build up, and it's very expensive. And you need you you basically need also a business model, uh, as the cloud hyperscalers show. So, <clears throat> how will all this uh, inter interdependency 
play out um, in the long run uh, in terms of getting a head start in this international race? Well, so I, I have uh, both uh, an op- a, a pessimistic view and an optimistic view. And uh, which one is correct? You know, I'm still, we're still at the kind of beginnings of researching all this. But the the pessimistic view is that there is a sort of path dependency or knock-on effect from one technology to the other. So the giant uh, tech companies, U.S. and Chinese tech companies' uh, uh, success in the platform business, in social media and online marketplaces and so on, gives them um, access to large amounts of data. It gives them access to large amounts of compute. And then that that uh, advantage is then repeated in the next technology, in AI, and so on and so on. So they will, according to this view, it's very hard to break this cycle because dominance in the previous generation of technology gives them an edge also in the competition for the next generation of technology. Then AI is being used to help research and develop the next generation of technology, whether it be space or whatever. Um, and so this is the, the, the pessimistic view. Um, but on a more optimistic note, uh, in real life, there is no exponential growth or or development. There are only S-shaped curves, sigmoid curves. When we are um, seeing rapid development, rapid advances in AI around us, and we extrapolate from those observations into the future, and we see this... Uh, tremendously fast pace and we can't imagine how we could ever catch up with that we forget that at some point that pace of change uh, will slow down when uh, when the easy wins have been won when the low-hanging fruits have been eaten Uh, let me use an example from a a previous ai technology five years ago uh, everyone was talking about self-driving cars Self-driving cars were supposed to take over our streets. Uh, Has that happened? No. Um, Why were the predictions so wrong? Well, in my opinion, it's because people were observing uh, improvements in in self-driving car technology. They could see that, you know, we had rapidly uh, progressed from 0% self-driving to cars that could, you know, maybe 10% drive themselves, 20%, maybe even 50% of the time. Um, and they extrapolated that, well, at this this pace of improvement, we will reach 100% in just a few years. But what they forget is that, of course, always the development starts from the easiest problems. And so after the, the, the first half of the problem is solved, uh, then we have to face the more, more difficult uh, problems. And the last one or two percent are those almost impossibly difficult challenges. Um, and therefore, the change, uh, what initially starts as a very rapid improvement slows down 
um, as it progresses and at some point basically grinds to a halt. So in the same way, taking those lessons now to uh, generative AI and large language models, very recently we've seen rapid improvement and we are extrapolating from that into the future and expecting that you know one year from now we will see something um, absolutely incredible if this pace of change continues the way it is going now. But in fact, there's already signs that um, some the current paradigm of develop research and development in in large language models may be uh, starting to reach a plateau uh, because I mentioned that GPT four was trained with something like 25,000 uh, GPUs. Um, and uh, the b- because every time you increase the number of parameters in the model, uh, the complexity of the model grows super linearly and you have to uh, use uh, a significantly more computing power than before. But the problem is you can't just keep adding more GPUs infinitely because the interconnection uh, overheads from these GPUs uh, communicating with each other increase with the number of GPUs. So at some point, the marginal benefit from adding additional parallel GPUs is entirely um, uh, uh, sort of countered by the marginal um, uh, cost of the additional interconnection overhead. So what I'm getting at here is that the current paradigm may be reaching its uh, its its plateau, and um, this type of technology may become increasingly commodified, and the action and the excitement and development may may move on to another type of technology. And if that's so, then it is possible for countries like countries in Europe that are currently not leading in AI development um, to catch up with this this type of AI development since the um, uh, pace of change slows down um, those um, a- access to access to the GPUs improves the, the technology becomes more commodified um, becomes more commonplace and so on so according to this more optimistic view, you know, it's more of a temporary setback. And uh, once development slows down, then uh, Europeans will be able to catch up again. Now, whether this optimistic view is um, correct or whether the more pessimistic view is correct, according to which then even in that next race, um, the previous winners will always be advantaged. That's um, you know that's still up for <laughs> up for research. Uh, thanks, and and I really think that we can use a, a word of caution about all this enthusiasm that we are experiencing about about uh, AI at the moment. Um, but I, I do tend to agree more with your optimistic view, and I will explain why. Um, indeed, what we have seen since uh, the, the internet has become so omnipresent in our lives is that uh, big tech companies tend to use uh, their market power uh, to, to leverage it to conquer more and more uh, digital markets. 
but uh, that is the current paradigm. If we look at before the years 200, the main technology companies used to be telecom companies, uh, but right now they're nowhere on, on, on the radar of, of the biggest players. So as you said, uh, this is the paradigm that we are looking at now. Uh, and if we look at uh, very impressive models like ChatGPT, MidJourney, um, these, as you said, are all based on very powerful supercomputers. What will happen when AI will be powered by quantum computers? Will that be perhaps the, the paradigm shift mm. uh, in this race? <laughs> That's a good question. So I um, really can't... Uh say much about that other than to present a few guesses i mean one one guess is that uh it, it appears that quantum computers could be uniquely suited to training certain types um, of ai models and if that's the case then um and and and, and if the build cost of quantum computers of that capacity is actually lower than the cost of having a massive data center full of GPUs, then that could sort of uh, democratize uh, access to AI training. So that's that's one possibility. And obviously, EU is not doing bad on supercomputer development. There is a, a leading supercomputing firm um, in Finland, uh, for instance. On the other hand, uh, quantum computing is something that has been promised to bring breakthroughs already for quite some time and it hasn't quite uh, redeemed those promises uh, yet so it remains to be seen when and to what extent uh, these promises actually turn into reality so that's the, the word of caution when we think about uh, ChatGPT and, and, and MidJourney and so on, um, and we are worried about their potential misuses, such as, you know, could ChatGPT be used to spam the internet, um, create lots of fake content, and so on and so on? This is, this is one concern that people have. And uh, maybe something that is forgotten um in there is that it's not just training the model but actually also running the model what the computer scientists call inferencing that also takes lots and lots of computing power so for that reason when you're using jet gpt you see the words appearing slowly because it's actually uh, using lots and lots of computing power in the background and that computing power has a cost. It costs electricity. It costs uh, in capital um, capital costs to actually keep all that computing power available there. So it's not like it's free. And uh, in fact, it might even be cheaper to use uh, low-paid um, online uh, sort of click workers to produce this kind of different kinds of spam content or, or just different types of content than it is to actually run uh, 
um, a high-end uh, large language model. Uh, or at least the difference in the cost is not orders of magnitude. You know, in both cases, we're talking about uh, some number of dollars per hour. So it's not the kind of situation where uh, suddenly producing text and producing original content is zero cost. If that was the case, then yes, that would could really upset some of the ways the internet works because now suddenly at no cost, people can produce um, lots of content, uh, whether it's uh, social media messages or political opinions or um, Facebook posts or reviews on uh, e-commerce websites. If those could all be produced at zero cost, um, then that could certainly change a lot how the internet works. And we are kind of used to expecting this sort of revolutions brought about by the digital, where something that used to be very expensive suddenly becomes very cheap. But at least so far, large language models are actually not that kind of a revolution because actually running the model uh, involves a non-trivial cost that is comparable in magnitude to what it costs to hire um, a click worker in a low labor cost country and have an actual human produce that content as happens today. Vili Ledon Virta is professor at the Oxford Internet Institute. Thank you, Vili. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Amazon Music. This episode was produced with the technical help of Evie Chiori. I'm your Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.